a taste of heaven this morning. Thank you, choir. Turning your Bibles to John chapter 14. If you're one of those that, who uh, mark where I preach from, you probably have this mark. I probably preached from it a couple of times before from these verses, but there's so many different avenues and directions to go here. This morning, I want to talk primarily about heaven and about um, Jesus' instruction of how to go, how to get there. For the next uh, few weeks after today, we'll talk about the cross of Christ. We'll talk about the events surrounding the cross, and we'll talk about um, all the things that were happening there uh, around and before the day of the crucifixion and on the day of the crucifixion. But before those things happened, Jesus gave his disciples some great comforting words. And I want to read those to you this morning. Would you stand for just a moment in honor of the reading of God's word? The Bible says this in John 14, beginning in verse number 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Father, bless the reading of your word. Bless the hearing of your word. Father, may our hearts and souls be focused on what you have to say to us today about our troubles and about heaven and about eternity with our Father. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A woman approached the pearly gates and was greeted by St. Peter who said, Before you enter, you must spell a word. Oh, she said, what word? Any word you like, he told her. She said, I'll spell love, L-O-V-E. St. Peter told her she could go in, but asked if she would mind staying there a moment while he went to get something. What do I do if someone comes, she asked. Just tell them to spell a word, St. Peter answered and left. She stood there only a moment when her husband came into view. She said, what are you doing here? And he told her, I was so distraught at your funeral that when I was driving home, I got into an accident, and here I am. And she said, well, you have to spell a word before you can come in. He said, what word? And she answered, Czechoslovakia. Now, that's bad theology, I know, but it was funny. I want you to know this morning from the very get-go that Jesus Christ understands your troubled heart. If you have worries and anxieties and problems and fears and doubts and confusion, Jesus Christ understands those things that you are going through because he came to this earth, he wore human flesh, and he is able to empathize with our day-to-day struggles. There are days in our lives when it feels like we are overwhelmed, where our hearts are weighted down with anxiousness and worry, and it should be remembered that Jesus spoke words of comfort to the men who were closest to him in one sentence, he gave them this encouragement when he said, let not your hearts be troubled. And when I was a young Christian and I would read those verses, it would 
puzzle me and trouble me as to why Jesus was having to tell the very men who were in his presence for three years, the very men who had walked with him, who had watched him perform these great miracles and had heard his great teaching and had seen his great authority. How could these men have trouble in their heart when they are with the Lord Jesus Christ himself? How could they have doubts and worries and fears? They're with God in the flesh. And then I became a better student of Scripture, and I read the events that were around there, and I, I know the emotional roller coaster of the past few weeks that were leading up to this moment when Jesus spoke to them. Think about this, as they entered into Bethany, and they came to the home of Simon the leper, and they were there having a meal together. And Mary, the sister of Lazarus, came in, and she broke the alabaster box, and she anointed Jesus there. She washed his feet, and she, she washed his feet with her own hair. And in doing so, it was, a, it was a ritual that was performed for someone who was being buried. And the men looked at these things, and they puzzled by, they're puzzled by them. And they noticed that one of the twelve, the man named Judas, is especially upset by these events. And he leaves the scene, and he's so upset that he will put into motion things that will take place. They think about the knowing that not only do the religious leaders have a plot to kill Jesus, but now they find out that the religious leaders also have a plot to kill Jesus' his friend, Lazarus. Because everywhere that Lazarus goes, people say this is the man who had been buried for four days and Jesus called him out from the tomb, and they see Lazarus alive, and they believe in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they begin to leave the synagogue and follow Jesus. Then they have witnessed um, the triumphal entry there, what we call Palm Sunday, and they've seen the people throw their coats down in front of Jesus as he comes in on a donkey, and as He's riding in on that procession, and the people are waving palm branches, and they're yelling, Hosanna to the king. They are, they are just enraptured, and they are, they are just beside themselves, and they're waiting on Jesus to enter into Jerusalem, expecting him to set up an earthly kingdom. But instead, he goes in, and he turns over the tables in the temple and drives out the money changers. And now they have finished the Passover feast. And Jesus has washed their feet. And Jesus continues to speak these words, these cryptic, mysterious phrases about leaving them and about all the things that are surrounding these events. And their heads are spinning. They are just troubled by all of these things. But I want you to think also that Jesus Christ himself had a troubled heart. Jesus is speaking this phrase of the greatest comfort that anyone could ever hear just after he has watched Judas reveal himself as the betrayer and watched Judas leave knowing that Judas is leaving the Passover feast to go and, and put into motion the final hours of Jesus' earthly life. 
He says these words of comfort on the heels of having just had to say to his, one of his closest disciples, Simon Peter, Simon, not only are you going to abandon me, but before daylight, you're going to deny me three times. And Jesus' heart is heavy. And Jesus' heart is troubled. It's only a few hours before he knows that he will go into the Garden of Gethsemane and he will agonize in prayer. And he will ask the Lord, he will ask the Father, if there is any way for you to take this cup from me, please take it now. But not my will, but your will, Father. And he knows that he is within one day of his own crucifixion. But even in the midst of this personal agony, Jesus' main concern is the peace of his disciples. The main concern of Jesus is that when he leaves, these men's hearts won't be troubled. Jesus ministers to these men even as he faces the greatest agony in the history of mankind. He's going to the Garden of Gethsemane where the writers tell us that he sweat blood and that he agonized and that he, um, his, he went through a physical pain that we cannot understand or comprehend. And then from there he went to be beaten and whipped by the Roman authorities and taken to a cross. But still he says the words, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, written in the original Greek, this sentence carries a command. This sentence that Jesus says could have been said in this way. Stand up straight. Put your shoulders back. Pull your chin up. Get those tears out of your eyes. Stop whining and complaining and get busy. I've got something I have to do. You have something you have to do. Let's get busy and let's get it done. But instead, in the context that we read these words in, we know that Jesus gently says to them, don't let your hearts be troubled. The Lord's words of comfort were not just for those men at that moment. They are just as real for every one of you sitting here this morning. Jesus says to us today, let not your hearts be troubled. What are you troubled by this morning? What is it that is weighing heavy on your heart today? What is it that you are anxious about and that you're worried about? Simon Peter had added a weight of trouble to the heart of our Savior that was a burden to Jesus. But later, Simon Peter would write these words in 1 Peter 5, 7 when he said, Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Think about that word, cast. Those of you who are good fishermen, think about what you do when you cast. You're throwing. You're throwing. The, the word here, cast, is meant to say that we throw it so far that we can't see it anymore. Jesus is saying, take those anxieties, take those worries, take those troubles, take those fears, take those doubts, and throw them to me in the portals of heaven, and let me help you to not be troubled. No matter how dark, no matter how hopeless, no matter how weak we feel. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. 
And then he gives us a qualifying statement afterwards when he says to the, the disciples here, believe in God, believe also in me. It's the how-to of the verse. It's the instruction manual that goes, around, goes along with what he has just said. It's the, it's the exact way to do this. He says the way to an untroubled heart is to believe in the Father and the Son. In the tense that it is written in here, it really is saying keep on believing in the Father and the Son. Continue believing in the Father and the Son. Never stop believing in the Father and the Son. Now think about these great attributes of God that we know about. Think about these three great attributes of God that we see in, in our relationship with him. First of all, he's omniscient. He's omniscient. It means that he knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. And in your life, he knows your trouble. He knew your trouble before you knew your trouble. And he also knows the outcome of your trouble. And he is encouraging you through his knowledge to walk with him through this trouble and allow him and his knowledge to guide you along the way. He's omniscient. He's also omnipresent, which means that God is everywhere all the time. The Holy Spirit of God is on this earth, and he is everywhere all the time, and he sees and knows everything that is going on, and he sees your trouble, and he knows what you're going through. And then he's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. Every He's sovereign. Every amount of power belongs to him. He had the power through his own words to create the universe. He has the power to heal your body. And I promise you this morning, whatever your trouble is, he has the power to handle your trouble. And he gives us that great comfort. And then he goes a little bit farther. And he says, not only should you not be troubled here on this earth, but I want you to know something. You have a home in heaven. And he unveils that heavenly home here beginning in verse number 2 three through 4. He begins by saying, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? In my Father's house are many rooms. Now, I grew up with the old King James Version of the Bible. And the old King James Version of the Bible says, In my house are many what? Many mansions. I had a problem with that when I began to read other versions of, of the Bible and it didn't say mansions there and it said rooms. I thought, man, I want a mansion. I, don't want just, I just don't want a room, I want a mansion. But I, I began to realize as I began to study more and I began to become a student of, of the writing of Scripture and know that there were older, more reliable manuscripts that said dwelling places. The, the writers of the King James uh, chose to say to take dwelling places and call them mansions. The writers of the version that I'm reading this morning chose to say rooms. But what Jesus is saying here is there's enough room for all of us to go if you want to go. There's plenty of room. There's much dwelling places there in heaven. Christ has addressed our troubled hearts, and now he wants to show us how he's going to provide rest for us. Shortly after these words that Jesus speaks in John 16, 33, 
He will say to the disciples, in the world you will have tribulation or trouble. In other words, he's saying you live in an evil, troubled world, and because of that, you are not exempt from, from being troubled or being oppressed by those things. But he says to them at the end of that sentence, he says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And now he is telling them here in verse number 2 in John 14, he shows us his design for our eternal rest. Now notice, Jesus doesn't go into an elaborate description and detail about heaven, about the physical part of heaven. John, who writes this gospel here, will later on write, John, he will write the Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 21 and 22, if you want to go later on this afternoon and read those two chapters, John lays out the beauty of heaven. A city four square with, with gates of pearl and streets of gold and a new, the new Jerusalem that comes down. Jesus doesn't go into all that detail. Jesus simply says for our comfort and, for, and to relieve the worries of this life, Jesus simply says it's where the Father and the Son are going to be and that's what makes it wonderful. And when the boys were young, we would go on vacations and we, uh, Bree was famous to us for finding the cheapest room possible. Now when I was a boy, my dad would take us on vacations and he would go, when we would get to the motel we were staying in, my dad would go into the room that we were supposed to be staying in. He would inspect that room, and if that room wasn't up to standard, we didn't stay there. I have left motels before. My dad walking out shaking his head. When he came out shaking his head, I knew we were moving on down the road. Now, he wanted the most for his money. Bree, she just wanted not to spend a lot of money. And so we have checked into motels before, my boys would call back home to my dad and say, we would be at the beach, and my, they would call my dad and say, will you please come get us, Papa? They've got us staying in this dive. <laughs> I have actually stayed in a motel where I noticed that there were some things that weren't, were, you know, weren't done and, weren't, and I actually came to find out that this, the motel was scheduled for demolition within the next month. I'm being honest. We have stayed in some of the, uh, it, it's, it's amazing that we made it out of some of these places. But now, some 20, almost 15, 20 years later, what matters most, I don't re really remember all the details about the rooms, what matters most is that we were there together. And that we, uh, we spent that time together. Listen, I know the physical structure of heaven. I've read it. I know it's going to be beautiful. I know it's going to be overwhelming. And I know beyond the beauty and the overwhelming part of it, I know that every part of heaven plays a purpose in fulfilling Scripture in the way that it's built. All of those things are going to overwhelm me, I'm sure, but the fact that I will be in the presence of God is what will matter most. The fact that some point... As Paul said, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. The, the, the actual fact that my soul will go immediately to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if I'm in a mansion. It doesn't matter if I'm in a room. It doesn't matter if I'm in a cabin in the corner of glory land. 
just get me there to Jesus. Heaven is not an eternal Disneyland that God created for us to hang out and have good vibes. Heaven is our eternal home where we will worship our holy God in the manner in which we were supposed to when we were created. There will be no sin, there will be no sorrow, there will be no other things that weigh us down. We will be able to give God the worship He deserves, and we will be able to do that throughout eternity. And Jesus says here, I am going to prepare that place for you. I want you to replace you with your personal name. Jesus says, I am going to prepare a place for Michael. I'm going to prepare a place for Linda. I'm going to prepare a place for Jeremy. I'm going to prepare a place for Ty. Put your name right there and know that if you were the only one who were going to heaven, Jesus wouldn't go to any less length of work for what he did if it were only you. Now it's customary. Jesus says that he's going ahead of us. It was customary in the time of Jesus to send someone ahead to prepare. John the Baptist had come making the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. In this context of the story that we're reading, Jesus had sent Peter and John ahead to make ready for the Passover meal. And now Jesus is ahead of us preparing our place in heaven. Now I want you to imagine this for just a moment. Just like the song said, I can only imagine. The one who in six days created the universe that is so beautiful that we see. The one who in six days created the mountains and the oceans and the seas and, and the rivers and the valleys and all the beautiful things that we are able to enjoy here. The one who did those things in six days has been working on our preparation in heaven for over 2,000 years. Can you imagine what he has accomplished in 2,000 years? It, it is amazing to think about. And it is important to remember this. Jesus is ahead of us preparing our place in heaven, and the Holy Spirit is here with us, and he should be preparing our hearts through our daily sanctification to want to be more like Jesus and to want to be at home and to have a longing for heaven. Paul said that we are citizens of heaven. I'm not a I, my my address, my physical address here is Piedmont, Alabama. My driver's license says that I'm a I'm a, uh, a resident of the state of Alabama. My passport says I'm a citizen of the United States, but my heart says I have a home in heaven. And we should have a longing. Every Christian should have a great desire to be in heaven. Henry Venn was a great Puritan preacher. And in his biography, they tell about him there in the moments as he's dying. And they tell Henry Venn, you only have a few hours to live. And this excited his heart so much, he began to talk about going home to heaven. And he began to become so excited about going home to heaven that he lived another two weeks. We should be with the mindset Jesus says that where I am, you may be also. Not only should we have a longing for heaven, but we should understand that Jesus has a longing for us to be there. And this is the purpose of the departure and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is heaven for the believer to be where Jesus is and with him 
forever. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angels speak to the disciples who are standing there, who are looking up into the sky, and they say, why are you standing here gazing? This same Jesus who departed this way, some way will in likewise manner return. And what the angels are saying, don't stand up gazing all the time. Be ready and serving and willing to do what he's asked us to do. And Jesus goes on in verse number 4 and he says, You know the way. The path to the Father's house is now plain. It's obvious how to get to the Father's house. Now, Bree's famous for being cheap. I'm famous for getting lost. I've never been to a major city in the southeast that I didn't get lost. Dennis Ragsdale can give testimony to this. It's like every time we get into a church van, wherever we go, it's like the Lord just takes a part of our brain and sets it to the side, and we can't find where we're supposed to go. I have been lost with Dennis in Birmingham. I've been lost with Dennis in Atlanta. We've been lost together in Nashville, in New Orleans. But what really is the icing on the cake is Pam Jones reminded me this week that I've also been lost in Jacksonville, Alabama. I was taking a group of youth to a youth event that was being held on campus at Jacksonville, Alabama, and I went to the wrong building. They said, the, uh, they said one building, and I had it in my mind that it was the main Coliseum. And so I went to the Coliseum, and there was no one there, and I said, well, they canceled this event. And somebody read the notice a little bit better and said, no, it's over here at the, at the other auditorium. And so we, we, we're making our way there. I've been on the campus at Jack State 732 times. I'm sure I got lost going from the Coliseum to the auditorium. And when we're walking in, we're walking in late, and one of the youth tells one of the adults there at the door, we're sorry, our youth minister gets lost everywhere we go. He looked at our van and saw we were from Piedmont and thought, well, maybe he shouldn't be in charge of kids. I got us lost two weeks ago going to the State Evangelism Conference. There's an app called Waze, W-A-Z-E. There's no way you can get lost using Waze. I got us lost. But guess what? The way to heaven, Jesus has made it so clear that even I can find it. And there's no excuse for being lost. None whatsoever. Jesus gives us the way. And he ends here in verses 5 and 6 by bringing it home and being definite about it. Jesus tells us how to go. Thomas asks a question. He said, Lord, how can we know the way? Now, Thomas is asking on behalf of the disciples. He's not a one-man show here. He's asking on behalf of the disciples. This is normally Simon Peter's responsibility to ask on behalf and to, and to, and to stick out and to... And to um, and to do what's wrong. But Simon Peter is so still so stunned that Jesus has told him that he's going to deny him three times. But Simon Peter doesn't speak this time, but Thomas does. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Where are you going? Are you going to Jerusalem? Are you going to Jerusalem to overthrow Pontius Pilate and, 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 and the ones who are there? And, and are we going to set up headquarters there? And, and, and are we going to start our kingdom there? Are you going straight to Rome and you're, you're going to overthrow Caesar? And is that where our rooms are, are going to be? And Jesus answers him so 
succinctly here in verse number 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now think about this. If Jesus had just said one of these things alone, it would have been enough to stagger Thomas and overwhelm him. Jesus has called himself at the tomb of Lazarus. Jesus had said to Martha, the sister of Lazarus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus had said to the Pharisees, I am the door. And he had made the statement that he was the light of the world. And now, to these men with troubled hearts, he, and to us here this morning, all that we need to remember is this, Jesus Christ is everything. In his statement here where he says he is the way, the truth, and the life, he says, there's not one thing that I am not. There's not one detail that I have not taken care of. There's not one iota of anything outside of me that you need. I am every single thing you ever have to have. Bree and I were talking last night about the devotion, and we were talking about yesterday, day three, Saturday. And... She told me that she had underlined these words, and I have highlighted those words this morning because it fits so well with what we're talking about this morning. It says, when all is said and done, what difference will it make if we drive luxury cars, eat vitamin-enriched food, live in palatial homes, and are buried in mahogany caskets if we rise up in judgment to meet a God we do not know? Let his goodness take you by the hand today. He will lead you to repentance. It may be that for too long you have called all the shots. Put your hand in his hand today. Go ahead, do it. He will lead you to repentance. And that's exactly what Jesus says here. He says, nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. No other way. He says, you're not, not, you're not coming through Jesus, the good man. You're not coming through Jesus, the great teacher, or Jesus, a prophet sent by God, but you are coming through Jesus, God in the flesh, God the Son, God who was your sinless substitute on the cross at Calvary. And he says, if you try to go any other way than around that cross, then you are going on your own power, and you're going another way. And Jesus says, I'm telling you the way, and I'm telling you the truth, and I'm telling you that I am the only life that you can hope for and that you need to repent and believe. And, and in those words there, what he's saying is, I want your absolute whole life. I don't want to be compartmentalized. I don't want you to say I've made Jesus a part of my life. I don't want you to say that Jesus has, has, has this part of my life or I, I go to this church or, or I go here and I do this good work. What Jesus is demanding here is this, that you give him your absolute whole life, your sins and your worries and your doubts and your fears and your troubles. He's saying, I want everything because I am giving everything. 
saying, don't, you, you can't hold back, Thomas. I am everything you ever need, and in return, I am expecting you to give me everything. He doesn't say, Thomas, ask me into your heart. He says, Thomas, give me your whole life. Give it all to me. Surrender it to me. Jesus would be so emphatic with this statement that he would say to his disciples and to those around him, he would say, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and crucify yourself daily. I'll accept, he said, this is what it takes. Jesus says right here, he says, it, I have made the way clear, Thomas. I am the way. I've told you about heaven. I've told you about this home that I'm preparing. I'm leaving you now. I'm leaving you now. I'm going to prepare that place. And I want you there with me. And guess what? This morning, he still wants us there with him. He has a longing in his heart for us to be there in heaven with him for eternity. Darren is going to lead us in a time of invitation. And I want you to come to a place this morning where you ask yourself, is Jesus the way, the truth, and the life for me? Or is he a necessity that I have when I need something? Or, or is he just what I go to when I, you know, I think I'm in trouble? Or is Jesus my all in all? Is he my everything? And have I given him everything about me? There's nothing else that matters this morning. There's nothing else that should be a thought of ours this morning except our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing that as he's there in heaven preparing that place for us, we have the opportunity to spend eternity in the presence of the Father and the Son. Would you stand, Father? I pray this morning and I ask you to speak to hearts and souls this morning, I ask you to open our eyes spiritually to allow us to see what it is that you have prepared for us. And Lord, I pray that we have prepared our lives because you are the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way. Father, if we have said in our lives, as some have said, well, it's Jesus and water baptisms to wash away my sins, then we know that's being lost. If we've said in our hearts, well, it's Jesus and my good works, well, then we know that's being lost. But if we've come to a place to where we said, as in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that it's not by works that any man would boast, but it is the free gift of grace through faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus and the work he did for us on the cross, then we know that we can have salvation. Father, would you allow anyone here this morning who wants to know for certain the assurance of heaven, would you allow them just this morning to openly say to you, Father, I want to repent of my sins. I want to turn and change my mind. I want to leave those sins. I want forgiveness of those sins. And I want Jesus Christ to be my way, truth, and life for now and for eternity. 
Father, will you give them the courage to do so, and will you give them the courage to boldly say to this congregation, that's exactly what I've done this morning. Maybe there are those who need to proclaim that they are a, a child of God, and they haven't been through baptism, or maybe they need to be a part of this fellowship. Whatever decision, maybe someone just needs to come and pray for someone. Whatever it is, I pray that we will be obedient. In Jesus' name, amen.